Hey everybody, Chris Fafalius here. If you enjoy One Hit Thunder, which I'm assuming you do considering you're listening to it right now, I want to tell you about another great music podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. It's called Riffs on Riffs. On this season of Riffs on Riffs, hosts Toby Braswell and Joe Watson are breaking down one iconic pop song each week. Everything from Taylor Swift's Cruel Summer to Journey's Don't Stop Believin' to Naughty by Nature's OPP. Each week, they crack open the song, trace its history, decode those cryptic lyrics, and unearth the hidden gems in its musical DNA. Not only do they dive into the song's history, lyrics, and impact, they also go down some fun and oftentimes hilarious rabbit holes. So yeah, if you're a fan of One Hit Thunder, I think you'll also enjoy Riffs on Riffs. So go hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. If you grew up in the late 90s and early 2000s, you couldn't escape the infectious and catchy pop-punk song Right Now by SR71. However, after it appeared on countless movie soundtracks, the band vanished in a matter of four years. While the lead singer Mitch Allen went on to write some well-received songs, including Bowling for Soup's 1985 and becoming a popular producer, the band is all but forgotten now. This week I sit down with Danger Club guitarist Mark Bancroft to decide if SR71 brought the one-hit thunder or if their career learned to curse, and now, bitch, it's over. One hit is all you need To make the money guaranteed And you can live off royalties Forever And it makes me wonder is it just a wonder, or is it one hit thunder? So, SR71? Yes, SR71. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, you had all the chances in the world, and you thought, right now, you want to talk about SR71. It's just one of those songs where, like, it's really unfortunate that that was the only song that really took off from them. Studying for this podcast by listening to their entire discography, which is all of three albums, um, I feel like they did have a lot of a lot of really good songs, but then also they had a lot of really not great songs. I'll say a few things about this band. First of all, I think that right now is, in my mind, one of the perfect pop punk songs. Like if you need it to introduce what pop punk music was to someone who had never heard it. Uh, right now is not a bad like starter kit song. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, it, it came out in the same eras you know like some 41 and all those kind of bands so like you know some 41 was i think all killer no filler was literally the first album that i ever bought my own and like that's almost all i can think about when i hear the song right now so like it kind of encapsulates that entire like you know however old i was 11 year old me at the time yeah it's definitely that same wheelhouse and uh this song was big in the year 2000 another song that is very similar in my eyes uh as another 2001 hit wonder song and it's definitely one that i know is on the horizon for us one of these days is uh nine days absolutely story of a girl Um, oh yeah 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 like there's just some about like those two bands where like you could reasonably confuse them and Mm -hmm. i was shocked to find out that their original drummer actually quit the band to join nine days uh so makes sense uh, yeah, they were more interconnected than I ever imagined. I also feel like 
despite the fact that this is a quote unquote one hit wonder or whatever, Mitch Allen and Butch Walker, who are the two main songwriters of the song right now, probably live off the residual checks of this song showing up in damn near every teen flick and TV show from like 2000 until 2015. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, Butch Walker has gone on to do, you know, tons and tons of stuff. So like in addition to this, you know, he's, he's obviously still racking in money, but I feel like Mitch Allen's probably still holding on to this one, but I think he also, um, he also did a lot of uh, additional I was, production work as well. I was going to say actually, not nearly to the level of a Butch Walker, but Mitch did become a producer for a lot of pop stars. So he did Jonas mm-hmm. Brothers, he did Demi Lovato, he did a Fallout Boy record, he did Jason Derulo. So he's definitely doing all right for himself as well. He just wasn't behind as many like, like he didn't get nominated for anything or win, you know, have like number one hits the way that Butch Walker did. But he's definitely interacted on the b-side tracks on some bands albums mm-hmm. well i, I do want to actually interject with the, uh full disque- full discretion i i do have wikipedia open right now yeah um D- full discretion two- most of my research was done via wikipedia <laughs> <laughs> i have one two three four no three three wikipedia tabs open right now <laughs> <laughs> in, ad- in addition to some of my OneNote notes, but it says here that in 2007, he was uh, nominated for a Latin Grammy Award. Oh, well So he had been. nominated for something. That is true. All right, never mind. <laughs> and now I feel like a racist that I didn't include that. Uh, but the history of SR-71 is is very brief. It's a very, mm-hmm. very brief history. They, they formed in 1996 in Baltimore as like a spinoff of another band called Honor Among Thieves. And then they released their debut album, Now You See Inside, in late 2000. Uh, And their first single was Right Now. And it was massive. Uh, It reached number two on the alternative radio charts. And it got all the way up to 81 on the Hot 100. Mm -hmm. Do you know what the one song was that Right Now couldn't surpass in order to have that number one alternative rock slot? Was it Kryptonite? No. No? Okay. Cut my life into pieces. <laughs> <laughs> I, I literally have uh, in my notes songs at number one on modern rock around that time. Kryptonite, Last Resort, and Californication. Those yep. are the ones that popped up. Yeah, Papa Roach took that number one spot, and then trailing behind SR seventy one was changed by the Deftones. <laughs> uh, so v- very new metal heavy top three with SR seventy one just uh, sandwiched in the middle like an Oreo, like a new metal pop punk Oreo the top three on the rock charts at that time. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, it's kind of weird. Like when, when I look at SR71 on Wikipedia under genres, you know, they have pop punk, they have alternative rock, punk rock, skate punk, and then they have new metal, which I would never consider SR71 yeah. new metal, new metal band by, you know, any metric. There's another band who I also see get labeled new metal all the time. And it drives me up a wall, which is uh, alien ant farm. I've never once listened to Alien Ant Farm and thought, hmm, I should be also listening to Corn and Limp Biscuit. I'm always like, man, I want to listen to more pop punk music because yeah. that's what I consider Alien Ant Farm. Yeah, for sure. I I 100% <laughs> agree. Like how how does that how is that new metal like I think they just toured with a ton of new metal mm-hmm. groups at the time. And that's probably the same thing with SR71. They were right at the tail end of pop punk when like new metal was just exploding at mm-hmm. that time. 
So they did have a second single, which is actually one of my favorite songs on their debut album, but it did not perform well at all. Uh, it was a song called Politically Correct. Yep. And uh, it is catchy as fuck. I oh, love yeah. this song. It's super catchy. It's like, uh, let's see, there's, I think I have three or four songs listed on that album as like potentially being like singles. Um, and that's definitely like right up at the at the top of, of my list. Well, I don't mean to piss you off with things I might say. So when I try to shut my mouth, they come out anyway. So when I speak my mind, that's when we connect. Yeah, but that's not politically correct. I mean, it kicks off. It does one of the things that I always love, which is like, uh, and there's another song you and I talked about before recording fame. Both of them have a very similar trope that I love, which is like kicking off the song with just vocals or vocals and guitar singing the, the already super catchy chorus. So it's like in your head before the rest of the song even begins. Kind of sets you up for for the rest of the song. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember like I got this CD. Uh, I talked about this on the Toadies episode that came out a couple weeks ago that I had a teacher who gave me two random CDs mm-hmm. uh, that yeah. she had just gotten. And one of them was this SR71 CD. And I remember putting it into my because I had my little like Walkman CD mm-hmm. player. So I'm walking home from school and I pop it in. And the second that that song started, I was like, I am in love with this album. <laughs> like I was already into it. And like now it's weird. I know like Todd in the Shadows did an episode on SR71 and he gave them a bunch of crap for having a song about complaining about political correctness. Mm-hmm. I think that is a very 2018 perspective of the phrase politically correct versus a 2000 perspective on that Mm -hmm. phrase because yeah now when people complain about political correctness it is definitely from a i want to say my racist jokes perspective (laughs) i think this was definitely more just a no matter what i say you're saying i'm saying the wrong thing and i i feel like i'm not even allowed to talk anymore type Mm -hmm. perspective yeah Yeah, i don't see mitch allen being uh (laughs) A yeah, and, racist conservative. Yeah, like. I, I couldn't see it either. <laughs> um, yeah, my like my introduction to this band, I think, was hearing right now in passing, and it's funny. Like, I remember hearing this song when I was real young, and like I said, I was probably about maybe eleven years old at the time. And I, I for years, I thought that I heard it on a snowboarding video game soundtrack. Like mm-hmm. I immediately thought it was like, you know, SSX tricky or whatever it's called. And then I didn't actually figure out who this band was until several, several years later. And, you know, I feel like I kind of missed that, the opportunity of like diving into this band back when I was, you know, in the heyday of, you know, really, you know, angsty pop punk stuff. From the perspective of someone who owned that first album right when they were blowing up, like I got that CD in late 2000. So mm-hmm. it was literally as the song was on the radio still. And I loved it. I loved every, like I had that CD practically memorized to the point that still now, 20 years after it's been released, if I pop that album on in my car, I can sing along with probably eight out of the 11 tracks (laughs) completely by memory. I wore that CD out. 
I didn't own their other two releases until very, very recently because they both were just so well, one wasn't even promoted or released at all in the United States. And the other one was very under promoted. Uh, and mm-hmm. the debut single off of it, I saw it maybe once on the box and was like, this doesn't sound oh, like SR 71 at all. So I stopped like the song tomorrow off of their album tomorrow mm-hmm. is quite possibly the worst song that they've written. And that was the lead single off that record. And I was like, this doesn't sound like SR 71 at it, all. It so doesn't. I doesn't. Think- and in, in doing the research behind the band, um, it says that David Bendeth, again, mm-hmm. hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, he's produced breaking Benjamin and, if you were to replace Mitch Allen's vocals with the singer of Breaking Benjamin, you would have a Breaking Benjamin song right there. Tomorrow is, I think, a Breaking Benjamin song that SR-71 ended up acquiring. I mean, that is possible, especially when you look at how many SR-71 songs other bands acquired through mm-hmm. like working with Mitch Allen. So, yeah. so like, it totally makes sense. He probably learned that from the Breaking Benjamin sessions. It's like, yeah, it's, oh, it's just so weird. Like, you can give people other songs. It's just like it's so weird how how much darker tomorrow is compared to now you see inside or even here we go again. Like it's just they have these like really like a really poppy album, really dark and you know not as successful album, and then another like really poppy album. Like it's just kind of weird that it's sandwiched in between. It's I can make a proposal for that. Mm -hmm. So you're literally listening to an album a year before September 11th, followed by an album the year after September 11th. (laughs) Which I, which I think is, I, that sounds silly, but I think that that is a very contextually important thing. Because as a kid who is in high school and obsessed with watching, like I said, The Box and MTV2 and like all of those channels during high school, like music videos and music in general took a huge change in everything when September 11th happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a pretty good point. Like even I would say like look at a music video from the year 2000 and then look at a music video from 2001 or 2002, mostly 2002 because obviously September 11th was towards the end of 2001 and just visually it went from bright colors and you know it went from like a puff like a cliche puff daddy music video which is just like extravagance and big coats to a lot of like black and white videos, very dark color videos like it was just a very somber time visually and musically. So I think mm-hmm. that that's where that huge shift in style came from. Uh, but it also is the beginning of Mitch Allen getting a little bit of producer credit. This was the first thing he was a producer on. That's true. Yeah. When you bring up the, the whole September 11th thing, it really makes sense now because like the first thing that I think of around like that time where like, you know, the box and MTV two were still doing music videos. I think of stay together for the kids. Yeah, yeah, that music video compared to any Blink-182 video that came out before that. I mean, granted, the the lyrical content is pretty dark, too, so that kind of lends itself to the darkness of the video, but, like, it's the first thing I think of. But so many music videos look like that during that time, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, it was very muted colors, it was, like, weird blues and blacks. Um, mm-hmm. But then, uh, they get dropped by their label entirely! Yay! <laughs> uh, but they're still killing it out in Japan. So they released what I would actually argue is their best album, their last album, Here We Go Again, which was only available in Japan. It was not made available in the U.S. until 2010 on some digital platforms. But it's got 
a couple things. First of all, the opening track, Axl Rose, is a fucking banger. It's got a great cover of In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel. But the mm-hmm. most important thing is that this is where you get the original version of 1985, which was later made popular, I believe, that same year by Bowling for Soup uh, when Mitch year? Allen produced their album. Was it the same year? I think so. 2004? Yeah, because that's that's when it came out in Japan. I think what happened on that was that they were literally on tour with Bowling for Soup. And I think Jarrett was like, hey, can I have that song? Like, can I can we record that for our next record? And he was like, sure. And then Jarrett from uh, Bowling for Soup did some lyrical changes. But I actually think the original lyrics I like a little bit more. Yeah. I, overall, I think I like the, the SR-71 version better. Like, I feel like it's it's a little more raw and I like the like more like synth sounds. standpoint it's a much more depressing song in a weird Mm. way uh because bowling for soups version of the song is literally just like this isn't it just crazy that this girl's mom is so into the 80s still when it's (laughs) 2004 but like the sr71 song is like hey this girl had the potential to actually be the next big thing and then accidentally got pregnant and her career fell apart and it's like 20 years later she's still dreaming of before she had kids and she was about to be something big it's like yeah that's a dark ass song (laughs) but poppy is shit because they didn't like the the chorus that you're thinking of when you're 1985 like they kept that chorus it's just a couple uh verses in the bridge the bridge is very different so what do you what do you think of them changing the the opening track on the u.s version as compared to the uh, japan version What, what does it open with on the u.s version it opens with all american uh, <laughs> I think Axl Rose is such a good opening track, though. I, I think All American was a, a pretty good switch. Like, I feel like Axl Rose, well, it does start strong. I feel like All American, like, I'm also kind of biased right now because I didn't listen to the, the Japanese release of this album, so I didn't get used to it. But I feel like All American, listening to it now, sounds like a better opening track to me. So you got, you dug deep into this right. SR-71. I oh, did. Deeper than any person, and no offense to any of the other uh, past or future guests on this podcast, but you like literally just listened to those three albums repeatedly, took notes, learned a few of the songs on guitar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, Which I have a cover of right now that's going to be uh, hopefully released at the same time as this episode. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about the song because... I mean, you literally took the time to learn the song. And one of the things that you have that I don't have is a musical talent. So, like, I would love to know from from you. Well, I I mean, you're the guitarist in a band, a very good band in that for that matter, uh, Danger Club. Mm -hmm. And I am just a guy who has a 
lot of podcasts that he produces and sometimes hosts. Like, can we talk about that song from a musical structure from like you having to learn, learn the song and learn the solos. And, and, you know, you did like a multiple, multiple, like three guitar recording cover of this song. So like, what is your analysis of the actual musical structure of the song and the, and the writing of it? I picked the song originally because like, I thought like, how, how hard could this song be? It's, you know, a couple of chords thrown together. It's, you know, a typical pop punk song, but when you listen to it a little bit closer, there are a few additional elements to it that kind of, you know, I, I think they were just, you know, thrown in there to beef up, you know, the, the chorus, the, the in, you know, like middle, I don't know what to call it. I always call it another intro after the chorus when they repeat the intro, but um, second intro, quote unquote. And like there, there's just a lot more behind it than I was expecting. And it ended up being a much more challenging cover to do as a result because <laughs> I wanted to do it justice. Um Hopefully I did. Um, and the, the solo was much harder than I was anticipating. <laughs> you know, we, we give eighties hair metal a lot of, a lot of guff on this show, but uh, one of the things that eighties hair metal was actually really good at was really technically difficult guitar solos. And the solo in right now definitely has a similar vibe of oh, like, yeah. yo, we're just going to fucking finger tap and like shred yeah and I, I feel like, like a lot of the 80s stuff actually does make d- does have an influence on a lot of these like earlier well yeah i guess earlier pop punk type bands like i know some 41 you know they're they say that maiden and priest were the gods that they praised and like it definitely shows like dave brown sound like he is an insanely good guitar player and when he can he'll throw some crazy shreddy shit in there and that's one of the reasons why i love them growing up is like here's this band that does these like cheesy pop punk songs, but then throws in these crazy guitar solos. And it's just, I'm here for it. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station. It was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. I do like chocolates. Get down! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. (laughs) <laughs> like SR 71 is definitely one of those groups where intentional or not, they will always have, because their debut album, there's no real demos that you can find before this album. They're always going to have that like manufactured in a studio sound mm-hmm. when you, that you associate them with in the same vein as like a good Charlotte or a simple plan where it's like, okay, well group of young, attractive dudes, their first album is on a major label with very little like pre-career leading into it. So like, it's hard to not separate it, but 
I mean, the song is a fucking good tune. Yeah, it, <laughs> like it's an it, it's undeniably good tune. It, it definitely does, deserves a spot in anybody's like you know quintessential pop punk playlist. Like it, it is, it deserves that spot. Now, what made you come to this specific song, if you don't mind me asking? Because I mean, we're what 10, 11 episodes into this podcast. There's quite literally thousands of songs to pick from, but you were pretty quick to SR seventy one. One, I really liked the song and I feel like it, it it's one of the songs when I think of like a one hit wonder, like it's one of the ones that kind of stands out to me. Two, if I was going to be listening to any band's full catalog, I want to make sure that I actually enjoy it. Fair. Um, <laughs> you I don't want an like, Aqua situation like yeah. when we started the show. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want a ton of Aqua. God, just thinking about that. Make them but like I, I liked right now. I, I had listened to a lot of um, the first album, you know, gr- not growing up, but like you know, within the past like ten years or so. So I, I already sort of knew what I was getting into. So there was that kind of like safety net of like, okay, if I have to listen to all this, like it's not going to be the worst thing in the world. I also knew that their catalog was pretty small, so it wasn't going to be a huge commitment to listen to the whole discography. So those were some yeah, of the say, what's it about thirty five songs total? Yeah, <laughs> if, if that. Yeah, it's it's not the the most extensive career, uh, which could have. I mean, I I think that there are a few bands that I feel like if they really went for it, put out a new record, heavily promoted it, like maybe. And I feel like SR seventy one in like, I I think it was just a matter of like if this album came out in nineteen ninety eight instead of two thousand, and then here we go again was their second album. I don't think that we'd be talking about SR-71 as a one-hit wonder. Oh, definitely not. 100% not. But I think them coming out at the tail end of pop punk, of, of their type of pop punk. You know what I mean? Like, this is this is that Blink-182 Green Day era pop punk before you start to get more into, like, the Panic at the Disc, like the Fuel by Ramen pop punk, yeah. which is a very different type of music. Mm-hmm. And I think that people don't realize that, but, like, there are two very distinctly different forms of pop punk that are the 90s summertime pop punk and then like the Fueled by Ramen, like very intricate, uh, elaborate production style pop punk. And I don't think that SR71 would have been, would have fit in with those bands, really. They were mm-hmm. a, hey, we're a three piece or four piece band that's like, just about having a good time like we just want we want to write the music that you're listening to when you're sitting out by the pool this summer that's not really what panic at the disco or bands like that were necessarily aiming for they still wrote some summer jams but like it was just a much darker overall tone of Mm -hmm. music yeah i mean both both i guess waves of pop punk are, are great but yeah they definitely have very distinct sounds that you know one may not be able to do the other in that regard. Well, and I mean, as we talked about with tomorrow, like there's already evidence that they just don't work as a darker band. Mm -hmm. They tried, (laughs) they tried their, their best and (laughs) boy, did it not do well. But like when it's just upbeat summer jams, like hell yeah. You, so you had mentioned with this band that you felt that like, unfortunately you you said something along the lines in the beginning, like unfortunately the song that they're going to be most remembered for is right now. So as someone who just recently has been pretty much exclusively listening to SR 71 for the last week, do you have like a song that you've picked up while listening to this, that you are just like bar none. This is the 
best SR71 song, and I will continue to listen to this song well after we're done recording this podcast. Well, I mean, we mentioned it earlier, but like Fame, Fame is a fucking jam. Like I, I love that song. <laughs> that song is just so catchy, and that 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 intro, just like the first time I heard it, it just like grabbed me. It's just <laughs> so catchy, so happy, and. If I if I had to pick one that like was like a like a second hit, I think I would go with fame. Fame's what she's wanting. Not a face in the crowd, just a disposable pop star. Staring down from thirty thousand feet above the planet. She gets the sense nothing's behind her anymore. Her fame has left her nothing short of a fanatic For the chance to be the one that we adore Yeah, it's weird that that one didn't even get... Like, I get why they went with Politically Correct. Because as we talked about when, when we first started talking about that song, it is, it's like a grab you by the throat and be like, you've got to love this song type opening to it. Mm-hmm. But like fame has that too, man. It's got that acapella chorus. And then there's like some really cool synthy pieces going on in the background. It's a very, like we said with a lot of the other stuff, it's a very full sounding song. And one of the things that I thought was kind of, kind of cool is uh, when I was re-listening to it, it almost sounds like there's a theremin in the background in the chorus. That might be what I'm talking about when I said synthy parts. It's probably like, a theremin. Oh, I'm, I'm sure there's, there's tons of synth and stuff in it as well. But like, there's like... It sounds like this almost like spooky sound that's going on in the chorus. It's it's really cool. And then like when you're just listening to it in passing, it's like one of those little things that you just don't really notice until you like really sit down and listen to it. So one of the things ironically that so there's a lot of stuff that ends up on the cutting room floor with any podcast that I record. Uh, and one of the things that ended up on the cutting room floor when we did the Marvelous Three Butch Walker episode was Chris uh, talking about the fact that he really doesn't like the song right now by SR 71. And the biggest reason why he didn't like the song was because for him, he's like, I was, and I totally get this, but he was saying I was in a band that played the same music as that band in 2000 touring. And I was playing shows all over the United States. I don't live that far from Baltimore where they're from. And they blow up on the radio and I have never heard of them. I've never heard of any bands that I'm friends with playing with them. I don't know. Like I have never heard anything about this band. So for him, he immediately was like, they have to have been some manufactured record studio pop punk band. Like that was like his perspective on them. Mm-hmm. And like we said, this album is very production heavy. It's very full recording. And I wonder if that lack of clout or or earning their dues or whatever phrase you want to use also was detrimental to the band because i wonder how many i don't think they really went on the road with any like pop punk kings you know what i mean like i i don't think Mm -hmm. that they were i think that they were in a weird way trying to distance themselves from pop punk which could be a huge issue when like if you want to talk about a fan base that will stick with you whether you're popular or not like pop punk is right there <laughs> so mm-hmm. like yeah. so like if they're actively not like if they're only touring with like the big record label bands then like yeah they're, they're not even really grasping a a good audience 
if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that does raise a pretty interesting point. Like they are this band that just kind of came out of nowhere, had this huge success. One of their songs made it into, I think I saw that it made it into a bunch of um, like movies and uh, the Splashdown video game soundtrack, which is pretty solid. Well, and like the first, so the first album produced by three different men, um, one of them who produced Under Oath and Kill Switch Engage, which I mean, a little undergroundy, uh, but then the other guy did the Pixies and the Foo Fighters, and then the third guy was doing Unwritten Law and Jane's Addiction. So even from like a producer standpoint, I mean, you've got RCA Records signing you, but like mm-hmm. definitely right out the gate, you've got like top-notch producers, just well, well-established record label. It it definitely makes it feel questionable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Uh, I honestly didn't think about that until just now. <laughs> so what's, uh, let me ask you, what's the, what is like one of the songs that you would recommend people absolutely avoid with, uh, with their beat? Like whatever they can, don't listen to it because it will just further make you not want to listen to more SR71. I mean, a lot of stuff on tomorrow. I wasn't a huge fan of like they're there. Some of them have like their time and place. Like tomorrow I could see people enjoying I could see people enjoying goodbye um, specifically on that album. I, I this, th- this whole album is filled with a lot of these like mid tempo songs where they're like kind of slow, have like real heavy guitars that just kind of like strum on one chord and have these like one note, like lead parts happening in the background. And like, that's not particularly my flavor of music that I want to listen to. And if you want to listen to the more upbeat stuff that, you know, SR 71 is known for, I would say just avoid this album entirely probably like there's i think i have two or three songs on this album that i would think would be okay like i think lucky's okay even though the the verses are a little cringy and i had hello hello as a song that i would potentially listen to again i know that on that album uh the song my world was actually re-recorded by an american idol contestant on their Mm -hmm. debut album bo bice Uh, yeah but i don't know who bo bice is but yep <laughs> Neither do I. It just says it on the Wikipedia. <laughs> and then I think I saw that someone covered Goodbye as well. Goodbye was on um the WWE No Way Out. Yeah, it was a theme song. Which I don't remember Goodbye that well, but it doesn't strike I feel like just by the name it doesn't strike me as like a get people pumped up for some wrestling type theme song i don't know the 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 chorus is it's a little catchy but it's like on the 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 more like darker side of catchy it's like goodbye so long (laughs) all right i like it or at least i like the i listen to the song once or twice and i can like i can remember the the chorus so (laughs) it has some (laughs) some rememberability to it fair enough is there anything else with sr71 that you want to make sure that you bring up for people listening yeah um one of the things that i noticed when i first listened to now you see inside i think one of the biggest things that kind of made this album not take off as well as it could have is the track order was kind of all over the place so i know the first four are politically correct yeah right now into right now, into what a mess, into last man on the moon. So right there, going from right now, right now being this huge, exciting, fast-paced song, going into what a mess, I feel like was a terrible decision. 
would you say that it was a mess? I, I 100% would. <laughs> you're, you're going from this high energy song into this really like slow, really softer song. And it just kills the energy. Like you, you take off with politically correct, go into right now, and then you just die at what a mess. And back then I feel like it, it was, you know, in the, the Napster days where people were just downloading singles, but I feel like getting CDs was still not unheard of and listening to full albums was not unheard of. And if you were sitting down to listen to an album, I feel like that would immediately deter people from wanting to continue, I guess, or it would make people lose interest in what they were listening to. I think that that's fair. And I, and you and I talked about this a little bit where like, I don't hate the song. What a mess. I actually think that what a mess is a very good song with a really like when the chorus kicks in, it is Mm -hmm. a good chorus, but I do agree with you that like, it is a tone shift that is so dramatic and quick. I feel like that, that just killed it like that, that paired with the fact that like their next album was a complete dud. I feel like that just kind of, you know, was like the last nail in the coffin for them. Like that, that was what kind of, you know, sealed their fate. Yeah, no, I think that that's fair. And, but at the same time, like what a mess would kind of fit in with tomorrow. Like there's a handful of songs on the debut album where it would totally make sense for it to be on that second record. It wouldn't feel wildly out of place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What a mess for sure. Uh, Maybe another night alone. Um, and non-toxic, which they re-record it. Yep. <laughs> for the second album. But uh yeah, I just I I definitely think that they were a band. I mean, if we're gonna make the judgment of one hit thunder or one hit blunder, like I am firmly in the one hit thunder camp on this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that this band and I think that the fact that, you know, Mitch Allen will be one of the few people who had was in a one hit wonder band and then had his song create arguably a second one hit wonder band Yep, (laughs) uh, is, is a, is a rare thing. I mean, there's that's debatable. Bowling for soup definitely has a few bigger minor hits than SR 71 ever had. But like most people, the general populace, if you ask them about bowling for soup, they know 1985. Yeah. That's the first one. And one thing I wanted to bring up was um, I listened to this podcast called As You Were. It's a podcast about the band Alkaline Trio. And in the episode where they covered the song Sleepyhead, um, one of the hosts, David Anthony, said that a band is not a bad band if they have 10 bangers. And I was trying to go through the catalog of SR71 to pick out 10 songs that were bangers because I wanted to consider this a band that had the one hit thunder. And getting getting songs 9 and 10 were very difficult for me if i was going to use this as a metric like you were really making a stretch for it to get those last two yeah so in my in my top 10 and i want to see if if you agree with all of them is right now fame 1989 mosquito which ended up being a mitch allen solo song after the fact um all american politically correct another night alone last man on the moon and then lucky as number nine and the last one, I I have four, five songs written down because I couldn't really choose which one could be like the number 10 spot. I have Hello, Hello, Non-Toxic, Axl Rose, Tomorrow and Goodbye. I was going to say- I'm actually going to, I'm going to remove Tomorrow and Goodbye because- <laughs> I, I, for me, it's Axl Rose. Axl Rose, I remember when I finally, because I actually got a torrent of Here We Go Again, maybe a year or two before it was finally like on- actual u.s streaming sites 
because I was just like, I need to hear this original version from 1985. Like I was like <laughs> obsessed with hearing it. And like Axl Rose was the song, like it was the song that kicked off the album. And I was like, oh, they're back. Because I had like <laughs> listened to Tomorrow and was like, Tomorrow's all right, but it's not my SR-71. And Axl Rose was definitely like, this is the SR-71 I remember. Yeah. Like, so that's always going to be a banger to me because it was like this, this, uh, flare shot into the air letting me know they're they're still around they still they got still it. got it uh, i mean i also really liked paul mccartney i don't know why i always thought it was a decent closer to that mm-hmm. record but yeah i think that i think that everything that you've included would be songs that i would if i was trying to convince someone that there was more to listen to by sr71 than just right now it would pretty much be the list that you just provided nice. yeah. now if we were trying to convince people to listen to the Danger Club. What two or three bangers would you tell people to check out? Um, I mean, we just put out a new uh, new EP called Caustic and Exhausted, and I really like the song "A Calendar of Small Disappointments." Personally, it's one of the one of my favorite songs that we've ever done. Um, it does sound a little bit different than you know, if for whatever reason you are hip to danger club um and you know the good times are over our first album it does sound a little bit different than that but it's probably one of my favorite songs we've ever written so if you had to listen to us i would say listen to that or um i'm not in this pre-revolution that song's a uh i would consider that a banger for us i mean i i you know that i am an unapologetic fan of that first album yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, Eater of Worlds is a jam. Blinking Light is a jam. Panic is a great opener. Good shit. Good shit all around, guys. <laughs> Go check out Danger Club. I'll put one of my favorites by them on the outro uh, of this week's episode. But thank you so much, Mark, for, for joining me and talking about uh, the the music pop punk gods that could have been SR-71. And uh, we'll be back next week with even more One Hit Thunder. Thank you for having me. This has been One Hit Thunder. One Hit Thunder is produced by Matt Kelly as part of the Geekscape Network and hosted by Chris Fafalios of the bands Punchline, Pack, and Another Cheetah. Special thanks to our guest, Mark Bancroft. You can hear his band Danger Club's song, The Blinking Light on Top of the Mountain, from their debut album, The Good Times Are Over, playing underneath me right now. Visit punchlion.com for updates as well as news, merch, and other upcoming tour dates. Let us know your thoughts on the show by emailing us at onehitthunderpodcast at gmail.com. And make sure you rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app. Stay safe out there, love each other, and soon we'll be able to hug all of you. But until then, tune in next week for another episode of One Hit Thunder. listening to the Geekscape Network. Hello out there! Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. 
Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Oh.